Good morning. It's good to be here to worship with you all again this morning. Time races by and somehow in some ways it seems like it's been a good while since we were here on a Sunday morning, so it's good to be here again. I invite you to turn to James chapter 1 this morning. It's a passage that started circulating through my mind this week that I'd like to look at. I know that uh, you've been looking at the book of James in your Wednesday evening Bible study, and so you probably looked at these verses not too long ago, but uh, hopefully we can see some, some new truths here this morning. Or maybe be reminded of some old truths. I'd like to read, I think we'll read uh, verse 19 probably to go ahead and read to the end of the chapter. James 1, starting at verse 19. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man should be blessed in his deed. If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. So, this, these uh, seven or eight verses here cover a good bit of territory. Uh, there's several things I want to draw out, but there's there's one particular part of it that I really want to spend some time with this morning. But to begin with, I wanted to look a little bit. He starts out, and also then down in verse 26, he speaks about our tongue, about our speech about how we, uh, it, it really, I think what he's getting at here is how we relate to, to one another in our speech and how we listen. He says that we should be swift to hear and slow to speak. And that is, uh, that's an admonition that I think that we all probably need is to be quick to listen and slow to come forth with what we perceive as the answer. But what impressed me here in, in thinking about speech is he, he talks about speech, but then he goes from speech into wrath or, or anger. And I thought it was interesting how he ties those together because 
they are very interconnected. We tend to uh, not listen well, and then we tend to speak too quickly and too harshly. But I believe that uh, as we look at that, and we look at what he says here in verse 21, I believe that he gives the connection of why that that is. He tells us there in verse 21 that we're to lay aside, the King James says, all superfluity of naughtiness. And that is excess of evil things or sinful things. Things of the flesh. In order to receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save our souls. So I think he's saying that as humans, we have a natural problem with our speech and with our attitudes. But the solution lies in God's word. The cure is to receive that engrafted word, that word that God has, has given us, which we should, we should be making a part of our life. To engraft something means to make a part, make it a part. And so that is the, the solution that he's giving, giving to that problem of our speech. No, he says, he, I thought it was interesting that he says that that engrafted word which is able to save your souls. I pondered that a little because we know that our souls are, we come to salvation through a faith in Jesus Christ, a faith that, that moves us to, to follow after Him. And so why does he say the that the Word is able to save your souls. And I believe it's because it is through the Word that we come to that saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's through the Word that we, that this, the sin and deceit of our human fleshly nature is revealed. And it's through the Word that, that God's way for us to live, how He wants us to relate, how He wants us to speak to one another is revealed. So as we look at these verses, they talk about how we should speak. They talk about our speech, but more importantly, they're talking about God's Word and what God's Word can do as we make it a part, as we engraft it into our life. So that word, God's word is, is vitally important for us. So consider that as we look then at the warning that he gives in verses 22 through 24 says to be not only hearers of the word, but we need to be doers of what it says. 
Notice in verse 22 what he says happens if we if we're hearers of the word only and not doers. He said we deceive ourselves. So to hear is to have knowledge without action. It's like having the power but not having a connection to put it in, into use. Maybe you could liken it to having your vehicle started, the engine's running, but you have it in neutral. You can't apply the power that is there. So he gives them the comparison of a person compares this as of being a, a hearer and not a doer with a person that looks in a mirror and he turns away and he forgets what he saw. If that happens to someone or to us, we look in a mirror, we turn away and we forget what we saw. Whose fault is it? Is it the mirror's fault? You know, no, we know we know whose fault it is. It's ours. Mirrors don't lie. Mirrors reflect what is put before them. And in the same way, God's word is true. God's word never changes. Just like that mirror always reflects the image of what's before it. God's Word reflects us as we, as we look into His Word. It shows us things in our life. It reveals what's there. And it reveals truthfully. So when we forget the reality doesn't you know when we look in the mirror and forget reality doesn't change our mind changes our understanding changes and i believe that's the principle that james is trying to teach here is that god's word is the same as the, as the mirror it reveals us it reveals our hearts but it's up to us to take hold of that truth that is revealed to us and to make it a part of our personal experience rather than just turning away and then going forth as we desire, as our own fleshly nature desires. The truth of God's Word, what God's Word reveals to us must have an impact in our lives. It must change us or we're deceiving ourselves. And that's a... Uh, I think that's probably something that we all struggle with to a certain degree, to have a, a head knowledge of God's Word, to read God's Word, but fail to always engraft it into our life and to make it a part of my being. 
But thankfully, He gives us a cure for that human tendency. We see that cure in verse 25 where He says that whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful here, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deeds. So he says that the, the cure is to, to be looking into God's perfect law of liberty. Now, when Scripture is translated from the original writings from the New Testament, translated from the original Greek into our language, often there's little nuances that can be missed or overlooked or you know, our, our the language that's being translated in doesn't fully uh, describe the original thoughts. But that word that's, that is in our Bibles in the King James is looketh or it look carries a meaning of not just a brief glance, but of a bending down, getting close to, to carefully look. A look of interest, an intent studying of, of what you're looking at. So we have that contrasted with the man who takes a glance in the mirror and forgets what he looks like. Forgets the flaws that he saw. So we're to be intently looking into God's Word. And it's not just a one-time look. He says, and continueth therein. It's to be a, a continual ongoing looking into God's Word. Not a brief glance like the man looking in the mirror. But more than that, it needs to be followed up. That close, intent look needs to be followed up with a doing of what we see there. And that's how we receive the blessing that God has from us from His Word. So He gives a picture of the one who takes a quick look, claims to be religious, but what comes out of his mouth shows that his heart hasn't changed. And he contrasts that with the person who looks intently into the Word of God and does what it says. And we see that that is the person that's blessed. And then in the last couple of verses, or the last verse, verse 27 he describes pure and undefiled religion. That is the outflow of the person who has looked intently into God's perfect law of liberty, into God's law, and made application of it in their life. It makes a change. It, it flows back out to bless others. Now, I want to go back to 
a phrase here that I've already mentioned of what James says that we're to look into. He says that we're to look into the perfect law of liberty. And that's a uh, that's an interesting phrase. And I believe that we're correct in saying that that is God's word. Because that is how God has revealed his will for us. So another translation calls it the perfect law that gives freedom. And I want us to think about that. It's a little bit of a, uh, of a contrast there because when we think of laws, and I think this is, is correct of us to think of laws this way, but as we think of a, of a law, we think of restriction. We think of something that prevents us from doing something. And as we think about it in uh, our society, you're thinking of civil laws. Most civil laws, not all, but most civil laws are restrictions, not freedoms. They're created to prohibit certain actions. But yet James says that God's law is a law of freedom or liberty. So, what does that mean? What does it mean for us to look into the law of liberty or law of freedom? To illustrate that, I had to think of a fence. In the late 1800s, there was an invention made that changed the face of farming around the world. And that invention was the invention of barbed wire. And I imagine most of us are fairly familiar with it. We've either used it, we've crossed across it or through it, or maybe even been injured by it. I carry a scar on my hand from close to 40 years ago of a bad run-in with some barbed wire. See, barbed wire is, is a law, we could say. It is designed to contain. It is designed to set a barrier, a boundary. Think about a field that is surrounded by a barbed wire fence. And we get asked, is that fence? So we, we put a, a group of cattle in that, in that pasture. Is that barbed wire fence confining or is it free? See, that might depend on, on the viewpoint of those cattle. Because so often, cattle like the grass that's outside the fence better than they like the grass inside. And they'll go around that edge and they'll try to reach through and, and get what's on the outside. And so they probably feel like that that fence is, is rather confining. 
But why do we put that barbed wire fence around that field? Is it because the grass on the outside is bad grass? No, we do it because there's a need to set a boundary. We don't want those cattle running all over the neighborhood. We don't want them getting hit on the road. We don't want somebody else taking them. So we set a boundary. We confine them to a safe area. And when we consider that we're confining them to a safe area, in some ways we can look at that fence as a boundary that gives freedom. It gives those cattle the freedom to graze contentedly on that pasture without any fear of what's outside, what might happen on the outside. I also had to consider that that fence only feels confining to those cattle when they get up close to it. When they're in the middle of the pasture, they don't even know that there's a fence a hundred yards away. They can graze contentedly and not even realize that there's a boundary. It's only when they get up against it and they look through it to the other side that they start to yearn for that greener grass on the supposedly greener grass on the other side. So that's an, maybe a crude illustration that I want us to have in our mind as we consider God's word that James is calling the perfect law of liberty. So when we look at God's Word, do we consider it a law that gives us freedom? Or do we view it as a law that restricts us? Because God's Word does restrict us a good bit. It has a lot of commandments that it says that we that God's people shouldn't be involved in certain things. We shouldn't do certain things. We shouldn't think certain things. So it's restrictive. But I want us to consider this morning a little the fact that God's law is a law of freedom. So James here calls God's law perfect, first of all. He says it's the perfect law of liberty or the perfect law of freedom. So to be perfect means that it lacks nothing. Peter says in 2 Peter 1.3 that God has given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. How does God give us those things? God gives us those things through the instruction of His Word. So we have everything we need from God that pertains unto life and godliness. What else do we need? Is there anything else that we need in life to be successful in God's eyes? So God's Word is perfect. 
It has what we need. The psalmist also agrees with that in Psalm 19, verse 7. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Here again, that perfection means complete or entire. It's what we need. And it's what we need to be converted. To be turned back from a life of sin, a life of self, and turn to God. I thought it was interesting that uh, I was thinking about that this morning and it came to my mind and I looked it up. It's in Matthew 18, verse 3, that Jesus said, Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not see the kingdom of God. So we must be converted to be part of the kingdom of God. And we see that it is the law of the Lord that brings us to that knowledge. So now thinking about God's Word being a law of liberty or freedom, Jesus said in John 8, 31 and 32, if you continue in my Word, make it a part of your life, if you continue in my Word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. There's a couple things in that that stood out to me. If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. So if we're not continuing in God's word, Jesus is saying, really, you're not my disciple. You have to continue in my word, applying my word to your life. But he says that it is through that continuing in his word that you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So it's through the truth of God's Word, and as we follow the truth of His Word, that we will find true freedom. Also in John 8, a few verses on, John eight forty four, Jesus said that the devil is the father of lies. So he had just told them that if you, if you apply the truth of my word to your life, you'll find freedom. And then he goes on to say that the devil is the father of lies. So I believe that he is contrasting that God's law, this perfect law of liberty, stands in contrast to what the devil has to offer us. Paul makes that contrast as well in Romans 8, verse 2. He says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Now here, Paul brings in another law. So we're talking about the perfect law of liberty, but Paul says there's another law, and it's called the law of sin and death. Later on then, in... Romans 8, Paul mentions the spirit of bondage, being freed from that. So, there is a law that we are under that's a law of, of deceit and a law of bondage. 
if we're not under the law that brings freedom. Romans 6, verse 16. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. So see, we have obedience to one law or the other. We're servants to whom we obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. So God's law is the law that brings liberty, that brings freedom. We talked as well about how God's word or his law is truth. But another verse that stands out to me in thinking of that is the psalmist in Psalm 119 says that it is through God's law that he gained understanding. Psalm 119, 104 says, Through thy precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. How many of us in life have wondered what, what's the right way to go in life? How do I make decisions? But the psalmist said that I get understanding from God's word. And because I have that understanding, I hate every false way. So, so by knowledge of God's Word, applying it to his life, the psalmist gained a hatred for false ways, which were ways that would lead him the wrong direction. And in contrast, he doesn't say this, but in contrast, I believe he had a love for the right ways that were leading him towards God. So as we look intently into God's law, we gain understanding and we discern truth from error. And we gain direction for life. If we want to be sure that we're not following wrong ways, it's of utmost importance that we're familiar with and applying God's law to our lives. So I'm sure that there's a lot of other verses that we could look at as well, but can you see why James calls it God's perfect law of liberty? It's a law. God gives us direction of how to live, so it's restrictive. In a sense, we need to realize what it's restricting us from. And I just want to talk about a few of those. So we've looked at the fact that it restricts us from what is false and gives us what is true. It restricts us from the law of sin and death and gives us life. It restricts us from the spirit of bondage and gives us freedom. 
It restricts us from eventual eternal death and gives us eternal life. It restricts us from following after false ways and shows us how to walk in the truth. So is that a restriction or is that liberty? I think that's why James called it the perfect law of liberty. Like cattle that can find contentment in that pasture that's surrounded by the barbed wire fence, we can find contentment and security in knowing and following and applying God's law to our hearts. So we can view these things, maybe I should say it differently, we can can do like the, the, the man he describes here that takes a quick look in the mirror and forgets what he sees, In a spiritual sense, we can look at God's Word that way. And if we do, we're going to look at God's law and we're going to feel the painful inconvenience of that barbed wire boundary. But when we take the time to look into God's Word intently and to study what it says and to make personal application of those principles in our lives, the liberty is going to look wonderful. But we're going to have to take the time to bend over and to stoop down and to take that close look at what's contained and how it applies to our lives. And like I said, as we look at what he says about speech and relating to others and and anger, Those things come about so often because we haven't made application of God's Word as fully in our life as we should have. But then like also there in verse 27, the outflow of that is we make application of God's law in our life and we find that freedom and that liberty He says, talks about the pure religion and undefiled before God. It will will spur us to action and it will bless other people that we we come in contact with and that we relate to. So my challenge today for each of us is that we would intently look into God's Word, into His perfect law, and find that liberty that it brings. There's so many people in the world today that have a knowledge of God's law that they've never intently looked into it to the point of putting it into into real daily practice in their life. And they've never found that true liberty that God's word can bring. Let's us find that. And let's go out and live it Let's show it to others. Because it's what God wants for everyone. He wants everyone to experience that that liberty and that freedom that comes by living according to His perfect Word.
But God bless you, and we have a song.